Welcome to Piecing It All Together. My name is Bo Sanders, and today we have a special treat for you. Randy, when he was out in Michigan earlier this month, got to record a podcast with the people from Western Theological Seminary. It's called the Lux Cast, and he told me how much fun he had doing this interview, and we requested a copy of it. Uh, he talks with Dr. Travis West, and uh, they're sitting in a greenhouse. You can actually watch a video of that if you uh, look down in the show notes. I've attached a link there. Randy told me how great this interview was, and i got to admit, it was fun to listen to him talk to somebody that wasn't familiar with his stuff. I think that... Uh, sometimes, because I know him so well, I don't always ask the sort of a 101 follow-up question, so it was really good, and I thought it would be nice for us to pass this along. So, if you are new to the podcast, welcome. We're glad that you downloaded it. Thank you for tuning in. This interview, Randy gets to introduce a new audience to his work and his passion, and so I hope that you will enjoy listening in. If you enjoy this podcast, Piecing It All Together, go ahead and share it with your friends. We're trying to find a wider audience to expand the conversation. You can comment here on the show notes on Facebook, or you can email us at connect at piecingitalltogether.com. That's P-E-A-C. We also want to let you know that we have another live Zoom chat coming up for our Patreon supporters. So if you want to go over to patreon.com and support us, we are almost finished paying off our initial startup fees. And so we could really use help closing out that account. Enjoy this listen. Check out the LuxCast. They are in Season 5 doing a series on public theology, and I think that you might enjoy the entire series. Welcome to Season 5 of the LuxCast, where we explore the intersections of Christian faith, culture, and our lives. My name is Megan Rice, Communications Coordinator at Western Theological Seminary. The theme of this season is public theology, as we engage in dialogue about topics that affect both the church and society. Today's guest is Rev. Dr. Randy Woodley, Distinguished Professor of Faith and Culture and Director of Intercultural and Indigenous Studies at Portland Seminary. Dr. Woodley was on campus to give this year's Stoudemire Lecture in Multicultural Ministry. Dr. Travis West sat down with him to talk about indigenous theology and what he calls the Harmony Way. Well, hey, Randy. Hey. Nice to be here with you. Welcome to the LuxCast. Uh, it's been a good few days together and uh, eager to have this conversation with you. One of the things that you talk about in your book, Shalom in the Community of Creation, is is connecting this sense of the, the holistic concept of shalom in, in the Hebraic world with uh, what you've called the Harmony Way, uh, developed out of researching uh, a, a wide range of various Native American tribes. Um, and you, you see a lot of overlap between those two. And I'm wondering if you could just kind of set the stage for us by 
like seeing how you understand each of those two ideas or concepts, where is their overlap, and, and what are the implications of it? Yeah. So, um, honestly, I should be asking you that, Travis, <laughs> because you're the Old Testament expert, not me. Um, but uh, from, from and my knowledge really came about by um, not as much by studying the Hebraic constructs, mm-hmm. um, but by understanding um, uh, what uh, our harmony way is, which is sort of my journey and my discovery. And then many people coming to me and saying, "Oh, that's like mm-hmm. you know the Hebraic understanding of these things." And so, but but I. But it also got me curious because I read Walter Brueggemann's book, Peace. Yeah. And, uh, and in that, he does a pretty thorough job of talking about Hebraic concepts of shalom. Mm-hmm. And, and throughout the whole book, I kept thinking to myself, um, you know, we have Cherokee constructs like this, too. Um, you know, we, we call it something different. And at that time, I, I didn't remember what it was called. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so I, I sought out some elders and some language speakers uh, who were fluent and said, you know, what is, do we have something like this? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's Elohe or Deyukti, which, which are sort of two words meaning something similar. It's probably a lot like Shalom and Tikkun. Mm. Um, but, uh, and they sort of go, to, go together and encompass one another. But, um, and so I, I did get my initial um, sort of cue from Walter Brueggemann's concepts, mm-hmm. um, and I, I guess he's a pretty good uh, Hebrew scholar, Old Testament scholar. I'd That's what so. they tell me. Yeah, <laughs> uh, seems like a nice guy. I met him once, um, and uh, we talked, and and I found out, yeah, there are so many overlapping uh, concepts. And I, but then, as I talked to more and more indigenous people around the world, um, I found out that this is not foreign to them mm. either. So. So, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, Mbutu in um, um, the uh, Zulu idea, like you, you hear uh, Bishop Tutu talk about, or um, I have a friend who is Maasai who has a similar thing, or um, uh, uh, Maoris in New Zealand, Aboriginals in Australia, you know, Ikalahan in northern Philippines, indigenous people have a, a construct as well. And just Aloha in Hawaii, there's so many... Um, overlapping uh, commonalities between all of these that it's to me undeniable that these seem to be the original instructions for humanity. Mm. And, and they're the instructions that include all humanity. Uh, they're not exclusive whatsoever like much of our theologies are. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they're for the common good. They're for everybody to, to, so that we all can be a part of this good earth and it will flourish and there will be fecundity and and uh, and we can get along with each other. So, um, and, and that sounds somewhat utopic, I guess, utopian. But um, it's not um, utopian. I I don't believe that's so in either the, the Hebrew construct or uh, our uh, indigenous constructs. Um, this is a continuous part of life. And um, and if you had to look at it linear, I guess you would say you move in and out of it. Mm. You move in and out of shalom. You move in and out of. Um, but the best intentions um, are, uh, are are structured. Mm. So structuring love mm. is um, what I call when I think of the Hebrew construct, structured love. Mm. So Creator um, in the Old Testament 
builds these safety nets and builds these laws surrounding don't glean the edges of your field and don't go back and get a bunch of grapes if you forget them out there and and set aside one-seventh of your land and all that for poor people and for the wild beast and etc so that so that there are these safety nets and then you have the big safety net which is jubilee right Mm -hmm. Right. and we have a sort of an annual jubilee we used to we we really don't practice it that much anymore or it's at least not practiced to the extent it used to be unfortunately um, uh, we have green corn ceremony, and during that, you um, put out your fires, you relight them, you sweep everything clean, you go through everything, what you have. If you have two of anything, um, then you are supposed to find someone who, who needs what you have and give it away so that nobody has too much and nobody has too little. Yeah. And, uh, and I would say that is akin to, to the idea of the Jubilee uh, construct in, um, in the Hebraic idea Mm -hmm. um and so um and and many other uh groups have other things um so um you know there's just so much interconnectedness Mm -hmm. with the hebrew people or the ancient israelites uh in the hebraic constructs um that um you know i I, so i look at them as indigenous in some way right Mm -hmm. um because they come from a non-western worldview a pre-modern worldview, and I think that's the thing that our indigenous people are holding on to still, hopefully, mm-hmm. is uh, resisting modernity, resisting sort of being um, overtaken by colonial thought patterns, and holding on to the, that good sort of foundation that the uh, Creator has given us. Mm-hmm. So. One of the things that I have found so helpful and insightful from your work and interacting with it is that so I've been formed by, deeply formed by the, the dominant Western Euro-American worldview, um, the, the empirical colonial world is, is the air that I breathe. And for me to access the, the worldview that predominates in the Old Testament, I have to bracket the majority of, of that, or at least a good part of that worldview that I've been steeped in. Mm-hmm. And uh, for you, from the perspective that you've been steeped in, uh, in the indigenous worldview that you grew up in and have, have uh, sort of grown into, you don't have as many things that you need to bracket in order to access that worldview. And uh, one of the things that I found really helpful about your work is exposing that um, and, and uh, sort of... Uh, indicating by the the categories that you create and the overlap between the system that you describe and the system that predominates in the Old Testament through this Shalom, Sabbath, Jubilee uh, framework that that you've talked about. Um, There's just, there's so much overlap that there's there's less that has to be, there's less that you have to give up than Mm -hmm. what I have to give up. But what's what's troubling about that for me is uh, that the, the, uh, the, the Western uh, perspective that, that I grew up in is what has the kind of final word on theology. We're not as aware of the, the blind spots mm-hmm. that we have. Um, and uh, so how do you, with, with some of your, your students, how do you try and open up their, or, or, or sort of remove the blind spots that they have, the, the cultural worldview blind spots that they've grown up in, maybe in the church or 
in just sort of American culture? How, how do you do that with your students or with other people that you interact with? Yeah. Well, generally, I make outrageous statements. <laughs> <laughs> and then maybe reel them back in a little bit. Uh-huh. <laughs> but to uh, jar their... Um, so I... So I'm teasing a little bit, but but also I'm somewhat serious. Okay, so several things. So one is that I don't think that it's an easy job to do unless you create disequilibrium. Hmm. So, you know, some people would call it anarchy. Some people would call it chaos. But I create disequilibrium. Hmm. Um, and so that we aren't able to rely on our normal thought patterns. We're not able to, to rest on our... Uh, dominant normalized theologies and dominant normalized you know racial constructions and all those sorts of things and and i i uh as you said yesterday poke mm-hmm. and uh mm-hmm. um and so um and and it gets people thinking out of the normal patterns i mean mm-hmm. psychologists will tell you you know hey it, if you want to break a pattern, start putting your, you know, your left shoe on first instead of your right every day. You know, you'd create a disequilibrium mm-hmm. so that there's this uh, ability to sort of take something else in. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> now, you know, I was not raised on, like my wife was raised on the reservation and raised in that worldview. I was not raised with that. Mm-hmm. I actually, uh, uh, in thought that I was raised in a completely Western worldview. My, both my parents are mixed bloods and a lot of their friends were mixed bloods and and pretty much had assimilated, and yet somehow they had retained a lot of the worldview that I didn't even realize until later on. And when I got to to live in uh, reservation communities and things like that, I realized, oh, this is, uh, I'm not that far off, you know. So I retained more, but I think there's a number of things that do that. I think people who are perhaps raised in poverty um, sort of uh, reject a lot of the Western worldview and its tenets. Um, uh, people of color who uh, just don't buy into the dominant society and and the dominant what the dominant society subscribes to, and so I don't think we have uh, as as indigenous people I don't think we have uh, a market on uh, a non-Western worldview. Mm-hmm, you know, sure. I think there's a a lot of uh, people who and and even uh, I would say that um, uh, even if you uh, and, and I'm going to make an outrageous one of those uh, outrageous statements now. But um, I think that uh, white women don't have the same worldview generally as white men. Yeah, sure. And so uh, that's why we need to listen to women more yeah. um, because they come from a different worldview. They've been oppressed by, uh, in a uh, patriarchal society in the United States and under colonialism in that sense mm-hmm. you know, uh, for so long. I mean, uh, the cult of domesticity and the inability to even uh, leave your husband without him having the kids and you know, women were stripped of all these rights, and so, or never had those rights until you know really recently in history. So, um, so they even come with a different worldview. Um, so I, I think there's lots of places to gain access to that uh, um, that uh, alternative to the West worldview. We just need to be listening. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, thanks. Place is is a really important. Um, I don't want to call it an idea because it's not an idea. It's, it's a real thing, right? Place is, a, is an important It's the opposite value. of it's an idea. It's the opposite right? of an idea, right? It's, it's an actual location that has, that has a formative influence on, on your thought, on your theology, on your life. Um, talk a little bit about the, the role of place in, in your life and, and, and the influence that place has had on your theology. 
So it's hard to even formulate the question without going ethereal, right? <laughs> it is. Well, the English language actually sort of forces you to call things things, right? So you reduce them to yes. this, this sort of, uh, you know, take away their uniqueness. And, and it's a very abstract language. So. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about the idea of place. Yeah, yeah, right. right. Well, actually, that's why we're here. We're here on, on a farm uh, out here in, in the middle of, of Holland, Michigan. We're in the middle of a parking lot, which you wouldn't know. Um, but uh, an organic farm in the middle of, of Holland that's an important place mm-hmm. where, where a community comes and is sustained. Um, so, yeah, talk a little bit about place. Yeah, so, so I'm going to reach down here and just grab a little grass and a little dirt, and, and uh, it smells great, actually. So here's a little bit of dirt. There's, you know... In this little bit, uh, maybe uh, I have a teaspoonful, maybe at the most half teaspoonful. There's, there's probably uh, a billion uh, microorganisms in that if it's good soil, you know. Probably about a mile of um, uh, mycelium going mm-hmm. through what I have in my hand mm-hmm. right here. It's alive. Yeah. yeah um, right. and, and it's been alive. Um, e- even when it was covered with concrete, I, I know a little bit of the story here, yeah. it was alive. And it's been alive for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Who knows how long it's been here? Um, and it was alive when different peoples were here. And, uh, in, in, you know, I don't see any big trees here, but maybe on the outside a little bit, there's some bigger ones. And they may have been here, and they may have uh, uh, witnessed some things. And so the very soil is a witness to um, our interactions with it, right? Um and uh, we, we think of these things as dead. We think of the earth as, uh, even just to call it place, it's not just a place, it's actually an interactive place, whether it's social history or chemically or however you want to think it, but there's stuff going on, yeah. you know, all the time here. Yeah. It's not and inanimate. It's not inanimate. And, and, and our creator has a relationship with every place, hmm. you know, and uh, and created every place. And if you're a follower of Jesus and you believe uh, the New Testament, then then at least five places where it talks about Jesus had what we call the efficacy of creation, mm. that that all things were created by Him and nothing was created by Him, uh, nothing was created that wasn't created by Him, mm. and so and that He holds all things together. So somehow, Jesus is intimately involved also with not just the surface. But whatever is going on here. Yeah. Now, this should give us pause when we think about what we allow uh, to happen on this earth, uh, this good earth that Jesus made. And, um, and what we have allowed historically as well, it should make us think about that. And what animals and peoples we have blocked out from enjoying the fecundity of it. And so, um, you know, there's every place is unique. Um, so, for example... Um, we are uh, um, settlers in the area that we live in right now. That's not our land. So, and, and the land really doesn't belong to anybody. It belongs to, to everyone. But we have stories of our peoples who were caretakers of it, right? Mm-hmm. And so they may have been caretakers of it for 14,000, 15,000 years, mm-hmm. maybe longer. They know the land better than me. Mm-hmm. They have more of a right to teach me or to, to, to tell me it's not good for you to be here, all this kind of stuff. But those people no longer have a right because of colonialism. Mm-hmm. So it would be pure ignorance for me to think that, that I can come in a place and have a relationship with the land and know it without knowing the people who have been here for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 
Uh, the social history is absolutely crucial. Yeah. And, and when it comes to justice and talking about shalom and those things, it's absolutely crucial that I understand what has occurred here. And if, uh, if I'm going to be an inheritor of that, that I'm of the good stuff, I'm also an inheritor of the bad stuff. And I need to make sure that I somehow, uh, because part of shalom is restitution. It's uh, bringing things back around the way it's supposed to be. It's allowing not just the plants to be in fecundity, but the relationships and, mm. and whatever uh, God has been doing here in the past. And, and, and maybe uh, the Creator is just waiting for us to enter into those conversations and enter into those relationships so that, so that God can bless the land once again and create the abundance, which is shalom. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so, um, you said a couple of things that are really striking to me and important. I think that shalom and justice are intimately connected, right? So, you said um, that that shalom is the, basically the result of justice, right? So, when justice is done, when restitution is made, when things are put right, the result of that is shalom. Okay, I'll and, go with it. Yeah, is that fair? I think so, yeah. Um, and so if shalom is, is the, the holistic flourishing of all elements of creation, and place is, is a really important part in that. In fact, place is maybe the most important part in that, the actual created world. Yeah, there's no conversation without the place. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, let me throw in one more Hebrew word that I think is, is important in this, in this dynamic between shalom and, and justice. Um, the Hebrew word for justice is mishpat, and mishpat is often connected with the word righteousness, right? justice and righteousness. The word righteousness is tzedakah in, in Hebrew, and it, uh, it's not, in, in the Hebraic understanding, it's not this sort of abstract legal concept of sort of being in the right before some sort of normative law. Rather, uh, according to Terence Fretheim, an Old Testament scholar, it has to do with, with uh, conforming one's living, one's actual behavior and, and one's life to the patterns, the limits, the character of creation. Hmm. So one's, when one lives one's life in in consonance with the patterns of creation, the rhythms of creation, the, the character of creation, then one is living rightly or one is righteous. And so justice and righteousness are really intimately connected there that, uh, that shalom is maybe people living on the earth well with each other and with, with the earth and its, and its animals. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I'm, I'm curious about is how... How can we, as a church, as a, as a North American church, let's say, um, when we're so disconnected from the land, mm-hmm. we're so disconnected from creation, either from urban living or from uh, kids growing up thinking that food grows on the shelves at the grocery store, how, how do we reclaim this sense of shalom? How do we reclaim, how, how do we... Uh, live in the harmony way or live righteously um, what what resources does an indigenous vision offer to to the church to reclaim that um, what, what do you think so um, and it's difficult because you know uh, as uh, uh, indigenous people we are modern now too right we're we're caught up in all this and 
there are some communities that live a little closer to the land than others, but um, and so we're losing that, right? Mm-hmm. And and this is why it's so important, I think, to grasp this now, and uh, and especially at a time of such a, uh, uh, a severity of um, you know uh, terrible things that are occurring in terms of our EPA laws and those safety nets mm-hmm. that have protected the earth. Or, and, and, of course, they were all just sort of provisional, but now mm-hmm. the, even those are going away. And so yeah. um, we may not be able to recover from this if we don't act soon. Um, and uh, I think if we uh, uh, somehow start creating models, uh, I, I used to think, oh, everything's got to change at once, you know. For mm-hmm. the, but I think a good model can spread fast. Mm-hmm. And so we just keep creating different models where we're at, you know, mm-hmm. kind of the bloom where you planted idea, mm-hmm. and uh, and then try to get those spread so that more people will invest in those kinds of values and those kinds of things. So um, it's a, uh, I know it seems like a drop in the bucket compared to the task at, at hand, mm-hmm. but we just got to start doing it where we're at. Yeah. So say a little bit about the model of Ayla Hay Farm <coughs> and, and what you guys try and do. Yeah. So. So I can tell you what, what people tell us um, yeah. when they visit and they're, they're, we're part of the land. And, you know, we feed our family uh, mostly from the land there. Um, we feed other people. Um, we, um, uh, we always uh, have people coming and staying with us, groups, and, and they will want us almost always to talk about spirituality, the land, and things like that. And, and it's just kind of a general education, but it, but it, it reaches across those categories that they were given, mm-hmm. and so they leave going. This was such a holistic experience. This, you guys are living what you teach, and you know those mm-hmm. kinds of things. And and for us, it's just living. We're just doing what we do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but for them, coming from such a fragmented and compartmentalized world and worldview, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's sort of like just a demonstration of. How do you live more holy? Mm. And so, um, you know, I don't, I, I can't say there's a, you know, great, uh, you know, philosophical foundation except for we're just doing what we think we're supposed to be doing. We're just living like human beings are supposed to live in our estimation, and um, we're trying to not um, break or harness nature, mm. but, um, but, but, sort of bend creation. To where it can still do what it wants to do, but we'll all, but we can also benefit from it, right? Mm-hmm. So, and that's sort of when we make any kind of change, that's sort of what we have in mind. Is you know, like mm-hmm. we want to bend but not break. Yeah. So, wow. Well, that's great, Randy. It's been wonderful talking to you, and uh, I just I love the work that you guys are doing out there in Portland. And uh, thank you, thank you for being with us. Today. All right. Thanks, Travis.